0: This is the First Emmanuel Lutheran Church Podcast. For more information about us, who we are, or how to get connected, check us out online at
1: filministries.org. Good morning, everyone. I know it's been a while since y'all have seen each other, right? With uh, a bit of a break here in our, in our uh, Wednesday morning Bible study. But uh, it's great to be back and, and you get me today. Um, Pastor Rosh is out of town and uh, I'm gladly filling in for him as we kick off uh, the Gospel according to Mark. Uh, we're going to kick off in a, in a similar fashion by watching the overview from the Bible Project as we dive in. And you got your nice little placemat here with all the, all the details of the story worked out. Um, we're we're going to do an introduction today and kind of address maybe those initial questions or thoughts or concepts that come up. So you sh- uh, we got John handing some stuff out. Uh, thank you, John, for doing that. Um, yeah. Anything as we begin? Thoughts, comments, questions? You guys know when we start with a word of prayer. Place. There should be snacks. There should be. A, yeah. What'd you bring, Dor- Joy? Joy didn't bring anything, so there's no snacks. Okay. Gotcha. Next time. Next time. So, oh, Pastor provides snacks. Okay. I'll I'll let Pastor Rosh know he forgot snacks. I'll work on a sign-in sheet. I'll, I'll run down and grab that oh quick as we God. start this video. Yeah, I'll just, i just—I got the mental picture, and uh, we'll, we'll give you all—you know—A's for being here today. Uh, why don't we start with a word of prayer, and then we'll then we'll turn on the Bible Project video here. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, I give you thanks for this day, uh, for uniting us as your people, and uh, for calling us to be your own uh, forever. Bless our time in your Word today, and bless our time in relationship as we build each other up and learn from one another. Um, we pray that you're present among us today as we, as we study your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, we will uh, we'll turn that video on.
0: The Gospel According to Mark. It's one of the first accounts of the life of Jesus, and our earliest historical traditions link this book to a Christian scribe named Mark, or John Mark. He was a coworker with Paul and a close partner with Peter. And in fact, an ancient church historian named Papias, he recalls that Mark had collected all of the eyewitness accounts and memories of Peter and then shaped them into this account. But Mark didn't just randomly throw the pieces together. He's carefully designed the story of Jesus. In the first line of the book, Mark makes this claim about Jesus. It's the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now what's interesting is that this is the only time Mark is going to tell you what he thinks. For the rest of the book, he's going to influence you by simply putting Jesus' actions and words in front of you and showing you how other people react to him. Now Mark designs the story of Jesus as a drama with three acts. The first one is set in Galilee, the third one is set in Jerusalem, and the second act shows Jesus on the way from one place to the other. And each of the acts focuses on a repeated theme. So in Act 1, everybody's blown away by Jesus, and they're wondering, who is this Jesus? In Act 2, it's the disciples who are struggling to understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And then in Act 3, we watch the surprising paradox of how Jesus becomes the Messianic King. Let's just dive in, and you'll see how it unfolds. After the opening line, Mark begins with a quotation from the ancient prophets Isaiah and Malachi, who said that God would send a messenger to Israel to prepare them for when God would show up himself to rescue his people and become their king. And Mark introduces John, the Baptist, as that messenger, and then right when you expect God to show up personally, Mark introduces Jesus. And as he comes on to the scene, the heavens open, God's spirit descends on Jesus, and God says, you are my beloved son. After this, Mark places in front of us a summary of Jesus' message. He went about Galilee, announcing the good news that God's kingdom has come near. Jesus is carrying forward yeah. the story of God's rescue operation the world. Through Jesus,
1: God throwing the over the world. We can get other chairs a bit then, better. I invite to live under the would chairs be better? Here, Mark, we can get chairs. I'll, I'll get listen, chairs. lives in the middle of a construction,
0: construction zone. He goes about healing people whose bodies are sick or broken or under the oppression of dark spiritual powers. And Jesus even does something that for Jewish people, only God has the right, right. to do. He forgives people's sins. And just Jesus' actions well. here produce lots of different responses. So some people follow him and become his disciples. Other people don't know what to think, and still others reject him completely especially Israel's leaders who accuse him of blaspheming God and being empowered by people. But Jesus isn't surprised by these responses. In fact, he draws attention to it. In chapter 4, Mark has collected many of Jesus' parables about the hidden, mysterious nature of God's kingdom. And Jesus says that his message is like seed falling on different types of soil. Some are receptive, some are not. Or it's like a mustard seed that's very tiny. It seems insignificant. But then it grows huge and surprises everyone. Jesus' point is that he really is the Messiah, bringing God's kingdom, but it doesn't look like what anybody expected. And this growing confusion about Jesus among the crowds is connected to a key idea, Mark emphasizes at the end of Act 1, that even among Jesus' disciples, there's confusion. Even they are struggling to grasp who Jesus really is. And that brings us to Act 2. It begins with a crucial conversation. Jesus takes the disciples aside, and he asks, Who do you all say that I am? And Peter speaks up, saying, You're the Messiah. But it becomes clear that for Peter, this means that Jesus is a victorious military king from the line of David who will rescue Israel from the Romans. But for Jesus to be the Messiah means that he's the suffering servant king of Isaiah 53, who will bring God's rule by giving up his life in Jerusalem. And the disciples, they don't get it. They think following King Jesus is going to mean fame and status and importance. And Jesus makes it clear that following him is actually like dying, like carrying your own cross. It means rejecting violence and pride and selfishness and giving one's life out for others in acts of service and love. He has the same conversation with them two more times. And it all culminates in Jesus' important statement that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to become a servant and give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples still don't get it. They respond in confusion and fear. And so here in Act 2, Mark has placed another key story that echoes the book's introduction. Jesus takes three of his disciples up to a mountain, and he's suddenly transformed. He's radiating with light and glory, and a cloud envelops them. Now, this is just like the glory of the God of Israel that showed up long ago on Mount Sinai. And then the two prophets who stood in God's presence on Mount Sinai, Moses and Elijah, they appear next to Jesus as God announces again, this is my beloved son. Now, by placing this story in the middle of all these conversations in Act 2, Mark is making an astounding claim that Jesus, God's son, is the physical embodiment of God's own glory. And in Jesus, the glorious God of Israel is going to become king by suffering and dying for the sins of his own people. It's a puzzling claim that confuses and scares the disciples as they leave the mountain. Which brings us to Act 3. Jesus makes a very public royal entry into Jerusalem for Passover. People are hailing him as the Messiah. Then he enters into the temple courtyard and he asserts his royal authority by running out the thieves and crooks and stopping the sacrificial system. Then this kicks off a whole week of Jesus debating and confronting the leaders of Israel, condemning their hypocrisy, and so they set in motion a plan to have him killed. And Jesus warns his disciples, predicting that Jerusalem and its temple will be destroyed within a generation, and his disciples will be persecuted just like him, until he returns one day to bring God's kingdom fully over the world. And it all leads up to the final night. Jesus has his last Passover meal with the disciples, a symbolic meal that told the story of Israel's liberation from slavery through the death of the Passover lamb. And Jesus takes these symbols and he gives them new meaning. They point to the liberation from sin and death that will happen through the death of the suffering servant Messiah. From here, the story rushes forward to Jesus' arrest, his trial before Israel's priests and the Roman governor Pilate, all resulting in Jesus' crucifixion. And it culminates in a key scene that matches the important scenes from Acts 1 and 2. Except this time, it's darkness that descends, not a cloud. And instead of the divine voice from heaven, it's Jesus' voice crying out before he dies. And then most surprising is that it's a Roman soldier who sees Jesus die, who grasps and then announces who Jesus is. This man was the Son of God. He's the first person in this story to recognize the story's shocking claim about Jesus' identity, that it's the crucified Son of God who is the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who died for his friends and for his enemies. After this, Jesus' body is placed in a tomb. And on the first day of the new week, two women from his disciples come to the tomb, and they discover that the tomb is empty. The stone is rolled away. And an angelic man informs them that Jesus isn't here, that he's risen from the dead. And so he orders them to go and tell this good news to the other disciples that Jesus is alive, that he'll meet them back up in Galilee. And the women, they're freaked out. Mark says that they fled from the tomb in terror, telling no one, for they were afraid. And that's how the book ends, with Jesus' disciples showing the same kind of fear and confusion that concluded Acts 2 and 1. Now, if you look in your Bible, you'll see that the Gospel of Mark has more to its ending, where Jesus appears, he speaks to his disciples, But there's also a note there telling you that that ending is not part of the original book, that it's only found in later, less reliable manuscripts. Now, it's possible that the original ending got lost, or that Mark actually never finished writing his account, but it's more likely that this abrupt ending is intentional to make a point. The entire story has focused on the shocking claim that puzzled Jesus' disciples from beginning to end, that it's the suffering, crucified, and risen Jesus, who's the Messiah, the Son of God that God's love and upside-down kingdom were revealed as Jesus died for the sins of the world. And so this story ends without closure, and it forces you, the reader, to grapple with this very strange and scandalous claim about Jesus. And are you going to run away like the disciples? Or are you going to recognize Jesus as your king and go and tell the good news? And only you can answer that question. And that's what the Gospel of Mark is all about.
1: Okay, well there we go, friends. Uh have a good summer. <laughs> oh. <clears throat> I guess uh, initial reactions to to that overview. Yeah, John. There's no question the focus is on
2: Jesus Christ in the three phases as you know interestingly pointed
1: out by the author Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. My comment relates to the third box, second roll, uh, left hand box. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I uh, I I think that the Bible project is not necessarily trying to dive into um, apocalyptic readings in that sense. Um, because they have a, a broad audience and there's, you know, differing views on that. That's probably something that uh, we will we will address in time. Yeah, something worth thinking about, though, for sure. Anything else? Any other initial thoughts, comments? No? Okay. Well, Pastor Rash uh, put together uh, an introduction there on, on the on the first part, uh, that first page of the handout. Um, we'll see a lot of we'll see a lot of immediacy and hurry in the Gospel of Mark. It's also it's the shortest gospel, um, and it's action packed. Uh, some have said it even it even reads like a play, you know, like a, um, like an ancient play or drama, right? Uh, there's a lot of drama in in Mark's gospel. It doesn't mean it's not the truth, but he's writing with a with a different kind of style than the uh, historian Luke, for instance, right? And so as we read it, we shouldn't try to read it like we're reading the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke. We should give it its, its due as this dramatic, um, intentional, uh, intentional work that he's put together. Uh, and, and Pastor Rosh points out there, and you can read in detail as you take this home later, uh, John Mark, most likely the writer of this, uh, really studied under, under Peter, but also spent a lot of time with Barnabas on missionary journeys. Uh, he kind of ditched Paul and Barnabas on their, one of their missionary journeys, and Paul got so frustrated that he refused to work with John Mark again. Uh, so, so then Paul goes off with Silas and Barnabas goes off to do missionary work, uh, with John, Mark and others. So we see God using maybe some, some conflict within the church to, um, multiply the work that was being done. Uh, Mark's gospel, probably one of the earlier gospels that was written. Uh, he, like he said, compiled a lot of, uh, data as he went into writing this, this work. Okay. So as we turn the page, we're going to be talking today about the beginnings. So if we look at, at Mark chapter 1 and 2, how does Mark's ministry begin? The first thing we notice as we go into Mark chapter 1, there's no Christmas. <laughs> Mark doesn't care about Christmas. Uh, he's, he's taking us somewhere else. I know, it's sad, right? It's, it's, it's disappointing, it's frustrating. Uh, John as well, he doesn't, really, he doesn't really begin at Christmas either. Uh, but but Mark especially the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, so the four Gospel writers they place the beginning of their account of Jesus' mission in different places. So John, he's uh, he's got the, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was in fact God. He was in the beginning with God, and from all things, uh, him him, from him were all things made. Yeah. So that's John one, and and this is this is a very. Jewish and Hebraic in nature, right? Even as he starts with "In the beginning," uh, "In the beginning" is exactly uh, what Genesis means, right? So the beginning, in the beginning, it's how the Old Testament starts. So you see John making the connection all the way back to the Old Testament, the very first words of the Old Testament, getting incorporated into his gospel, trying to say, "Hey, look, look at the continuity here between." Um, the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the creation of the world and the life uh, and ministry of Christ. So Luke's uh, beginning, you see there uh, he goes to Mary, and he's talking about Elizabeth, right, in Zechariah. And we see there this bridge from the end of the New Testament, uh, or the end of the Old Testament, excuse me, where uh, the prophets, you know, are, are predicting and prophesying that, that uh, Elijah will come and prepare a way for the Lord. So Luke is trying to bridge, not from the, old, the beginning of the Old Testament, more the end, right? And even as Luke begins his gospel, he begins in a very Hebraic kind of uh, way as he tells his stories, uh, and he incorporates these prophets, right? Zechariah becomes a bit of a prophet, Elizabeth prophesying through her song, and John the Baptist being born, and then ultimately you have the, the Christmas narrative as well. Um, and, uh, and it's good to point out, too, at the beginning of... Uh, Luke's gospel, He's, he writes to O Theophilus, right? And Theophilus literally means the lover of God. Um, so could be an actual person or just all of us who love God, whether you're Jewish or Gentile. Um, okay, then Matthew, he begins with the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. So uh, Matthew's connection is, is more toward maybe we say the middle of the Old Testament, right? The, the promise God made to David that he'll build a house forever for him. And, uh, and how he's establishing that there uh, in the in the birth of Christ. So, but Mark, uh, he kind of skips all that stuff. He goes right to the uh, he goes to John, and then immediately into uh, Jesus' baptism in verse nine. Yeah. So why don't we read that? Mark chapter one, um, verses nine through. Well, let's just read. Mark 1, 1 through 11. I'm reading out of the ESV. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance... For the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Okay, well some things to notice as we begin, Um, baptism is the the signal of the new kingdom. Now we would say, what would be the Old Testament sign or signal of God's people? Circumcision, Circumcision, right? So there's no talk of, of that, but rather this new kingdom that's coming in the Jewish, among the Jewish people, and that's being brought in or ushered in through baptism. So even as, even as we see this at the beginning, um, we know then that, that Mark is also trying to, to inform a Gentile audience, too. The kingdom of God is coming. The way of the Lord is being prepared in our lives, not through outward signs such as circumcision um, or uh, the nation which we're from, but baptism. Like the new kingdom is coming through baptism. And, and John is uh, beginning that process. And then Jesus himself um, actually is baptized along with that. So I guess the question that we, we hear often is, why, why did Jesus have to be baptized? What do you think? Why did Jesus have to be baptized? Because he said here that Jesus is mightier than I. I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. Yeah. But he, he didn't.
2: He, he had to be baptized because he was still man.
1: Okay. What do you mean by that?
2: Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, he needed to be baptized in order to uh, cover the sins of mankind.
1: Okay. So, was Jesus not God until his baptism? No. Okay. He was always God. He was always God. Yeah. But his baptism is, would you say? The um, announcement of his. Okay. Announcement of his humanity to him joining alongside Humanity. Okay, yeah, that's good. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah. So. so,
2: what did baptism mean to this group of people at the time when John was baptizing? I mean,
1: we know what it was that's a great today, question. So, the word baptizo, it literally means ceremonial washing, right? So, they baptized their hands, they baptized their dishes that they would use. Um, it was the same word, right? So, So, it's a ceremonial washing. It's what would you say? Um, maybe equivalent to the anointing of the, the, the prophets or, or the, the kings in the Old Testament, you can say, in that um, they're trying to say, you are being washed clean, maybe um, being prepared for ceremonial use by God. Um, so you can see that uh, here they clarify the baptism in verse 5. Uh, verse five? No, verse 4. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So if we, if we then follow that line, the repentance is part of that. And what is repentance? Repentance literally means to change your mind. Metanoia, um, noose, or, or you know, mind. And so then meta is like to turn around, right? So change. So change your mind. That's what repentance is. So change the way you're thinking. Change the way you're living. Uh, change course. So baptism then is uh, an indication of that inner change. Uh, and then also it says for the forgiveness of sins. So they saw this as uh, as a would you say a washing away of the old and a making new. So, um, so maybe I mean, I would say there's a lot of continuity then yeah. between how they would have seen the you know, the baptism yeah. of their day. I think the one maybe the one difference would be um, as Jews, they already thought they were part of the kingdom. They already thought they were part of God's family, right? Um, whereas Gentiles were, uh, were brought into the family through baptism, right? And us today, you know, that's part of our liturgy and part of what we believe about baptism is that we're brought into God's family through baptism. For them, they kind of already had the idea, like, hey, we're God's people. We're Jews. We're children of Abraham. We're in. We're fine, right? So, so for them, it was probably a little bit more of a, uh, maybe the altar call experience, you know, that, that some Christians today still have.
2: Um,
1: but I, I guess he's asking about the temple and I I don't think that the prophets who found themselves in the wilderness felt very like tied to the temple. Do you know what I mean? So I, I mean your image of like you know being ceremonial clean to go into the temple uh, they just I don't think they had the same kind of maybe value uh, or high regard for the temple. That's why they're out in the wilderness. And we see also you know even in the Catholic Church um, before Martin Luther especially, you had like the Desert Fathers and the, the monasteries that represented maybe the more mystical or spiritual experience. And then you had the, the more ritual experience of the, of the church uh, and kind of the, the Pope and all that kind of stuff. So maybe there's a, a multi- multiplicity of, you know, ways of embracing the faith, yeah. We believe, yeah. And, and, and that was called the start of his ministry. Yeah.
2: He died at 33 roughly. Mm-hmm. Why did God wait so long to have Jesus
1: start his ministry? Isn't that a great question? Yeah. When should, I mean, you know, I'm, I just turned 33 on Sunday. It was my birthday. And uh, thank you. Appreciate that.
2: So your ministry is done.
1: My ministry is probably done. Um, it's really interesting how many times I get, you're so young to be a pastor. It's like, how old do I need to be to be a pastor? <laughs> right? Um, you have an answer on how old I need to be to be a pastor? No. Um, no, but I
2: think God was just looking at heaven in a different way than we might, and mm. to show the people he was a mature person. Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean that can be part of it. Yeah, yeah, Heidi. What was the worth of his life
2: between zero and
1: thirty? Mm. Yeah. Let's let's get to these two, and I'll come back to that for sure, Heidi.
2: <laughs> um, no, oh, hold on,
1: hold on, John. Sorry, yeah, Heidi. Did he do the wedding that Canaan in this this baptism? Um, I I don't know in the chronological. I'm sure somebody has done the kind of laying that out. I um, I I don't I don't have a solid answer for you on that. Sorry. Yeah, John?
2: Uh, the answer to Bob's query is, who can know the mind of God except what you reveal mm. in the scriptures? And the testimony of nature, of course.
1: Um, yeah, I, I would say the, the picture we get in Luke chapter 2, Jesus is at the temple, uh, his parents forget him. Can you imagine being Jesus' parents and forgetting him? Yeah. Um but what it says after that is he went home and was subject to his parents and continued to grow in stature and in favor with God a man. So um, I think what we find there is not not only the humiliation of God, but also the elevation of humanity, right? Like For Jesus, it was just worth it to live and to be part of a family and to go to work and to rest on the Sabbath. You know, so, so we see in, in the forgotten years of Christ uh, glory and beauty for all of our forgotten years, you know, where nothing profound happened other than we changed some diapers or uh, whatever it was. You know what I mean? So I would I, I think we can just see an elevation by Christ to the day-to-day ordinary life of, of humanity. Yeah, Sharon. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, we can look at the book of Acts. I There is some uh, discrepancy there, um, but I wouldn't say necessarily so. Yeah. Okay. Um, but he does say, right, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And... Uh, and as we get into that, we see, okay, the announcement. Uh, so John or so Mark is trying to say there, right? Uh, Jesus is the son of God. That John is completing the Old Testament. And, uh, and then that the Holy Spirit is going to come. So the purpose is to receive the spirit. And I was thinking about this recently because I'm doing a, a series on firstman.church on renewal. And um, I'm just going to bookmark this and go to Genesis chapter 6. Uh, in Genesis 6... God gets pretty upset with people, and, uh, and he says in Genesis 6:3, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Um, so God has re- re- removed his spirit from people. Now, I always thought that meant that they'd just die sooner. But what I'm actually beginning to think and believe is that people had the spirit of God upon them, and God removed the spirit and it's not part of our life as people. It's not the soul, okay? Because it says God breathed on them the breath of life, and, and they became a living being, which is nephesh, not ruach, okay? So the nefesh is the, the, the breath of life that we have, and the ruach is spirit, uh, or the wind, or the breeze that blows, right? So um, we could say, then, that, that Jesus' baptism is restoring the original plan of God, by, re, uh, by redistributing the Spirit to God's people. So I think what we can, how we can see that is um, the baptism includes water, and John was only washing with water, but when Jesus gets baptized, what do we see? The Spirit descending. So Jesus is the one who reestablishes the Spirit in the life of God's people if that makes sense. So more on that, hopefully, next week in Church. <laughs> so as we see the baptism there, uh, he came from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, we would recognize, if we were from that space, that uh, Nazareth was like, uh, let's see, Newburgh. Um, Anyone from Newburgh? Oostburg is Sorry. Is okay, Oostberg. Oh, they got pizza ranch up there, you know. I don't know if we can call him out. He's from nowhere, right? So Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. Uh, I just preached out at the bluff a couple weeks ago on uh, the crossing of the Jordan River. And what stuck out to me this time for the first time was that the priests entered the water first, and when their toes touched, the way was opened. So, uh, Jesus is opening the path to eternity, to heaven, to the promised land, by getting in the water, right? So, we can see not just that he's embracing his full humanity, but that he's also, as the priest of God, um, paving the way for the rest of us to go through the Jordan into the promised land. Uh, but we see here uh, the Trinity in action. He comes up out of the water... And immediately, so this is the first time we see that word, immediately, and we're going to see that a, a number of times throughout the Gospel of Mark. Uh, John sees the heavens open, torn open, and the Spirit descending like a dove. So, again, if you really think about the image in Genesis chapter 1, what do we have in Genesis 1? You know, the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters, right? God creates the heavens and the earth, and He speaks from heaven. Heavens torn open, and uh, everything's created. So here we have the Trinity in action, just as we did in Genesis. And God speaks, "My beloved son, with you, I am well pleased." Okay. Then immediately after the baptism of Christ, maybe you'd be like, "Okay, time to celebrate, right? Let's have some fun. Let's get to, to ministry." But no, no, that's not the way it goes. Would somebody read for us, Mark? 1 verses
2: 12 and 13. At once the Spirit sent him off into the desert,
1: and he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attending him. What? Isn't it strange? Yeah, so John, I don't, John doesn't have the, the temptation of Jesus. Matthew and Luke do. And we get this bigger narrative. Here we don't get any narrative. And, and the spirit is like throwing him out. It's the, the word there drove him out. It's like he cast him. It, it threw him. Okay, so the spirit, and how does he do it? Immediately. So Jesus comes up out of the water. Immediately the heavens open. And then immediately he's cast out. And it's like if there was a moment where glory was going to come to him because he was baptized, that moment isn't coming. He's going out into the wilderness. 40 days and 40 nights. The purpose is to be tempted by Satan. So the Spirit of God is sending Jesus into temptation. And then there's this really strange image, right? He's with the wild animals, and the angels are ministering to him. What do you guys take of that? This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It starts with him getting recognized and then getting out immediately. Why do you think it happens like this? Why would God do this? Yeah, so temptation uh, is uh, the word is perosmus, and it can also mean testing, right? So, um, it, it, yeah, temptation, testing, yeah, we kind of, they're synonymous. Yeah. But no one else so, knew what was going on out there, right? It was just Jesus and Satan. In the wilderness. Yeah. And the angels and the wild animals. Yeah. So the wild beasts knew. Yeah. Well, the human part of Jesus had free will. Do humans have free will? Anyway, keep going. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Um Well, Adam did. Adam and Eve
2: had free will. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, we had a we had a sermon series back in during Lent, the Temptations of Christ. Yeah, and and we we uh, focused in on Hebrews chapter four, which is Jesus was a man just like, and he faced every trial and temptation that we faced, uh, but he overcame them. Yeah. So that's uh, he demonstrated that uh, he could be fully man and still fully honor God.
2: Mm. Right, so bring your best I got it Right. And, uh, and oh by the way I'm practicing because the temptation is going to be much greater when I get to Gethsemane
1: mm. I'm going to have to have the strength to overcome that, that temptation yeah. yeah that's good putting, putting Satan on notice um, a like a hazing <laughs> hazing You, some have posited that Satan's initial role in God's kingdom was to be the tester, right? But Satan sinned against God by becoming the liar, the father of lies, it says in John, right? So, so Satan's role was to test Adam and Eve. God led him into the garden to do that. But he, when he, he lied when he said, you shall surely not die, you'll be like God. So um, I don't know where I was going with that anymore. But, oh, yeah, so Satan, even the name Satan, when you have four kids, you know, your, your memory goes, too. So there will probably be like a brief period in my 40s where my mind will be great. Uh, but Satan itself means the tempter or the adversary, right? So so the one who stands opposed. Uh, and, and Jesus allowed him to come. God sent him there, Um So Jesus could be opposed and have that adversary. But like you said, God was putting the adversary on notice too. That's good. Okay, so this is what we were seeing at the beginning, right? The announcement, the preparation, with the the baptism, and then the temptation. He overcomes the temptation. The wild beasts are out there. And maybe we see there um, the beginning of the restoration of creation. Jesus is able to be with wild animals just like Adam was in the garden, right? So this kind of Jesus reweaving things together in the way they're supposed to be. After that, we find at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, I always walk my eighth graders through the very first words of Jesus in each of the Gospels. Okay, we're going to get the first words of Christ here in the Gospel of Mark. Would somebody read for us Mark 1, 14 and 15? There you go. So this is, what would you say, the, the summary or the summation of Jesus' first um, proclamations. Now, we can only assume that his sermons were longer than this. Otherwise, we know exactly why he was so popular, right? His, uh, <laughs> his sermons were very short. But this is the, the summary of his proclamations of the gospel. Gospel literally meaning good news. Uh, and, and he said this, the time is over fulfilled. So the time has come. It's, it's drawn nigh okay and the kingdom of God has now come so close you can touch it. So there's a new kingdom um, that's, that's otherworldly. It's a kingdom that begins with baptism and immediately gets driven out into the wilderness. It's a kingdom that overcomes the wilderness and overcomes sin. So the kingdom of God is about repenting and believing in the gospel. So this is the summary, then, of the rest of the proclamations of Christ throughout. uh, Yeah. started with the baptism at 30, and then he had
2: three years for his trip through everything, right? Yeah.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. What do you think? It's amazing. Not enough time? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How could he have accomplished so much in so little time? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Jeannie. When Jesus came back from the wilderness after being tempted, did he just kind of like
2: walk into town and start talking, or did he go to the temple, or were there already people? Oh, yeah, that was a guy who got baptized and the heavens opened. He's kind
1: of special. I mean, how how did he even. What did it look like? Yeah, Yeah, so before he got baptized, he was what, a carpenter? Mm -hmm. You know? and that could either mean a stonemason or somebody working with wood. I know um, certain of our favorite scholars from Concordia want to definitely say he's a woodworker, yeah. which we all love, our own dear Dr. Pavla. Um, others posit he was a, a stonemason, since there was a lot more stonework uh, in those days. Same term um, was used for both. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just imagining all those, all those guys that do concrete work, you know how they look, right? You know, they, they're they're built, so I don't know. I mean, Jesus was probably, you know, I don't know, maybe an intimidating figure, too. That's a good question, and I think basically what we see is he's not going back to being a carpenter. He's not going back to being a stonemason. He's coming in, and, and what we would expect of him at, what, 20, 22, 24, 25? I don't know, whenever it's like, well, let's be done with this normal life, God, and just live this... Um, he just went out. And there were people looking for the kingdom of God. Right? John the Baptist was looking for the kingdom of God. The people that were following him were looking for the kingdom of God. You know, the Gospel of John makes clear that John and Andrew were both being discipled by John the Baptist. So there was people that were just like ready and waiting. Now, many of them were ready and waiting to be done with the Roman rule, right? There are, and that's, we'll get into that as we go along. But we find people waiting for the kingdom of God to come near. And now kingdom, that's a kind of a powerful word. Right? It means like, well, we're going to have a new kingdom. Maybe maybe you'd hear it like uh, today, um, hey, the time has come, a new nation is being born. You know, imagine, imagine a politician coming on screen and saying that. Well, you don't have to imagine it, right? It happens every two years or four years. A new nation is is at hand. Join us and join the revolution. I don't know, whatever it is, right? So these people, they're like ready. They've been they've been ready for this for, you know, um, 100 years, 200 years as, as the Romans have been ruling them. Uh, they've been looking for the kingdom of God. And here this guy comes talking about the kingdom of God. Um, yeah. So what is the kingdom of God then? What do you think is the kingdom of God?
2: prophecy throughout the whole Old Testament. They kept referring to uh, the promise of through Abraham of what your nation is going to be. Mm-hmm. So That's been sitting out there for the whole Old Testament. Unfortunately, they...
1: So you say the kingdom of God is the people of God.
2: Um, and the, the promise, the fulfillment of the promise of God.
1: Okay, the people and the promise of God. Oh, yes. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, yeah.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: We were now going to be a nation favored. Yeah, okay. Yeah, they might have heard that. Yeah. I, I, I conceive of the kingdom of God as the place where God's reign and rule is completely realized. So the kingdom of God is the place where God's reign and rule is fully realized. So at this moment in Mark, it's Jesus. It's the person of Christ and everywhere he goes. Right? And as he, as he goes and does healings, right, and as he preaches the word, the kingdom of God spreads because the reign and rule of God is being completely realized more and more. Uh, now, with the Lord's Prayer, we pray, right, your kingdom come. In Martin Luther, in the small catechism, or large catechism, right, he says, surely God's reign and rule, or kingdom, comes without our prayers. Right? Um, but as we pray, we're praying that he brings us along with him. And he also says, you know, it's interesting that the whole heavens and earth spin according to God's command. Yet here on this earth, he's allowed other kingdoms to try and assert their will uh, above his own. Um, so we're, we're praying that, that the reign and the rule of God become fully realized in our lives, right, as the kingdom of God comes to us, too. That's going to be a big theme, though, as we watch... You know, what does the reign and the rule look like? Even as we heard in Mark, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. We're going to have a completely different and upside-down kingdom in this Gospel of Mark. Uh, Okay, so we got his message. uh, If you're if you're following along in the handouts uh, from verses 14 and 15, and that's going to inform, like I said, all of his messages. We're going to be paying attention to um, well, the time, timeliness. Even as we think about. immediately being such an important word, or at once, uh, what does time look like to Christ? Um, one of my favorite scenes, which you'll get to, is where Jesus is like, okay, guys, we need to withdraw to a quiet place to have some, to have some rest and relaxation. And then there's a cl- crowd of 5,000 people waiting for them when they get there, right? So uh, this juxtaposition of time, you know, we'll, we'll track that. Um, kingdom of God coming, people repenting and believing in that good news. Okay, so who are the followers of Christ? We're going to find two groups, and we're not going to go quite sequentially here. We're going to start in verses 16 through 20. Uh, Would somebody be willing to read Mark 1, 16 through 20?
2: Gone a little farther, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in the boat, their nets. Delay, he called them, and they
0: left their father, Zebedee, in the
1: boat with the hired men and Okay, there we go. So we see a lot of immediacy here too, as we think about time. Who are these guys? Um, chances are they knew Jesus before this moment when he called them. Chances are they've been listening to him and following him for a little time. We know at least John and Andrew were paying attention to John the Baptist. So it's not like these uh, men were completely, it's it's not like this is the first time they met Jesus, right? Because that's often what we think, like, how could you just walk away from everything you knew? uh, For this guy who just has come, well, they they had been uh, maybe even praying for something like this. Uh, First of all, it would have been hard for them to uh, become uh, disciples of a rabbi because, well, they weren't the tops of their class, right? (laughs) They went out to go fish. Uh, and make their daily living that way. They were not, they were not trained theologians in that sense. Um, not that they didn't know scripture or have faith, but they, weren't, uh, they hadn't dedicated their life to the study of the Torah. But they knew their Old Testament. They knew the traditions, and their hearts were clearly in the right place. Because when Jesus said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And also the whole fishers of men thing, I don't know if there's a footnote here, uh, pe- yeah, it is the word people, so uh, that was the translation there. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to remember where in the Old Testament, I don't remember at the moment. But fishing for people, you know, it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like what we think of, like, oh, you're going to catch people uh, for God. It was, it was a little bit more of a negative connotation there. Uh, like, they're going to be caught, you know, by God's word. Now, being caught by God's word doesn't always feel good, does it? So uh, it, it, I think it has both connotations. People are going to be caught by God's word. For the for the better and for the worse, um, they immediately they leave their nets they follow Christ, and the same thing, uh, God see or Jesus sees James and John and he immediately calls them, they leave Zebedee behind, and uh, and they follow. Okay, so that's one group of his followers. They're they're just gonna go with Jesus and and I guess we have to ask why was following Jesus. In the day to day, like why was that part of his plan? Just as we asked, why did he wait till he was thirty? Why do you think it was such a big part of his plan, just to have these these men follow him everywhere he went? Yeah, they could see it, witness it. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, and they could, they could experience it. Yeah, and their words would carry weight. You know, I guess it's like, um, I know we have some sewers in the room. Who sews? Now, how did you learn to sew? 4-H. 4-H. <laughs> so what did that look like? When you were in 4-H, how did you look to sew? We started a really, really simple little practice. Gym. And you just started it by yourself? An adult leader, yeah. There was a leader. Right. They were showing you. There we go, a little triangle head scarf. Right, you can't, you can't pass on what you haven't experienced, right? So, even as we think about what it means to be a Christian, we can't pass on what we haven't experienced. So, if we want to be teaching other people how to pray, if we don't pray, we can't pass that along. Their prayers are only going to be as good as ours, right? And if we want to teach people to read the scripture, we have to know how to read the scripture. But we only learn how to know the scripture by sitting with people. Who are enveloped in the Scripture, right? And and I believe this is one of the um, biggest challenges of the church today because we have such an individualistic mindset. Like you got to go out and uh, it's a pioneer mindset, right? Just keep moving west. Just keep moving west. There's more land to discover. But west, the west dried up. There's no more west. So now it's like a personal journey and quest to you know find yourself, right? And and we. We haven't been very good at helping people experience uh, the things of the faith. you know. So it, we've boiled it down so little to just, hey, come to church on Sunday. That's your experience of being a Christian. And how, fall does, how far does that fall short from, from this image we have at the beginning of Mar- Mark's gospel? Follow me. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Just walk with me. Just live life with me right so what Christ does for his followers is just live life with them like the 30 years of life before that there's a value to the just like let's eat a meal together now people are building houses without even dining rooms right are we just are we inviting people over just to eat a meal and sit down and, and you know like you know people can't pass on what they don't experience you know this generation is not the When were TV dinners created? In the 50s? Come on, it's not a new problem. It's something that's been passed along, right? And we're seeing it come to a head because, well, people don't have the experience and they can't pass on what they can't experience, what they haven't experienced.
2: Yeah, it's something new also. Jesus said, what the Father has told me, I'm telling you. Mm. So it's this communication from the Father Mm. to his disciples.
1: That's the Gospel of John, though, Bill. (laughs) I that's right. (laughs) I and the Father are one. Yeah, from John. Yeah, you're very right. And I receive from the Father and I pass them along to you. That's great. That's a good point. Yeah, Sharon. Uh, You had asked about why he would choose
2: fishermen, but even at his birth, it was the shepherds, lowly, lowly people. Mm -hmm.
1: The educational elite, we could say, yeah. But if he had chosen the elite, it would have been a much harder road because he had to undo mm. everything that What are you trying to say about me, Sharon? <laughs>
2: no. <laughs> no. You're, you're doing right.
1: No, Sharon, I, I totally agree. Um, is, it easier, is it easier to instruct a head or a heart? That's the question. And it's easier to instruct a head. Yeah, it's easier to instruct a head than a heart. If somebody's heart's in the wrong place, it's going to be really hard. You know, even in hiring practices, they say, you know, don't necessarily look at the resume, look at the person. You know, the, the whole work thing will figure itself out if we just get the right heart, the right person, the right motivation behind it. Um, yeah, that's a good... And, and I think it should be instructive for us in, in our lives too, right? Like, um, look for those people with the right heart and surround yourself with them, you know? Right? Well, yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like we could probably sit on this for a while. Um, God found glory in in them. God finds glory in the ordinary and the lowly. I mean, yeah. Even the fact that he chose water to be baptized, right? And he went through that and he lived those 30 years, right? So we see a humility demonstrated by Christ as he calls these these fishermen. Anything else? Any other thoughts, comments? I got to keep track of the time here. Oh my goodness, we're drawing close. Okay, the out, uh, not only what, did he have Jewish followers, he also had some outcasts. If we look at verses 13 through 17, um, it says this in Mark 2, verse 13 to 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, uh, chances are, this is most likely Matthew, the gospel writer as well, sitting at the tax booth. Okay, he's a tax collector. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. And as he reclined, okay, another, uh, another side note, in the Gospel of Mark, you'll often find that there's no referent for the noun. And when he wants to talk about Jesus, he rarely uses Jesus' name. He just assumes that you know that Jesus is the central character in the story. So sometimes you get confused. Like If you just, if you just opened up your Bible to um, verse 15, as he reclined a table in his house, it's like, okay, who's reclining at whose house? We don't even know, but we know that the the central character of the gospel of Mark is Jesus Christ. So as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners, in quotes, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why is he doing this? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Did you notice that they don't answer, okay? The disciples don't answer. They're like, I don't know the answer to your question. So they have to tell Jesus. People are asking this, Jesus, what do we say? And Jesus hears it. He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, so a couple of interesting things. Jesus' Jewish followers didn't know what he was, what he was up to either, uh, but they just followed him along. So no judgment. He knows what he's doing. We're going to follow him. And Jesus has to explain not only to The people not following him, but but his followers as well. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Um, So we see Levi, an outcast of the Jewish community, uh, also included into his followers. So, uh, and and you see that Jesus is criticized uh, as well. Okay, well, we are about 10 o'clock. You guys normally go to 1015 though, right? No. Okay, we'll call it a day then. We'll leave there. We'll let Pastor Rosh know to pick up with spiritual versus physical healing and uh, the connection there.
0: Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about First Emanuel Lutheran Church, visit filministries.org. Have a good day
2: and God bless.